36th verse of the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Now in Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Darkus. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about at that time that she fell, fell sick and died. And when they'd washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Do not delay, come to us. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping, showing him all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out, knelt down and prayed, turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa, with a certain tanner, Simon. Adarchus was a, obviously a devout, um, compassionate woman. She lived in um, the city of Joppa, which is 34 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and in her house with a needle and she performed her ministry. She was able to see human need all about her because being a port city, in Joppa, a port city, people earned their living in the sea, many of them. And these men would go out into these wooden boats out into the sea, and many of them never came back. Caught in the jaws of the storms, they would perish. And historians say that many of their bodies washed ashore back in Joppa. And because the, there were many widows and fatherless children there, um, Darkus had a great compassion for them. She saw they had, you know, many of them didn't have the bare necessities of life, food and clothing, and so she began to make clothes for them. And these women formed a little group. We, we would call, call it a grief support group. It was actually a society of misery. These ladies would get together, and Darkus would care for them. I'm sure it entered their mind many times, what will happen to us if something happens to her? And their worst fears happened. One day she took suddenly, violently ill, and she died. And this little society of misery got together at her house, did what is customary. They washed her body and wrapped it and put it in a room, an outer room, perhaps the very place garments for them. And some of them weeping, had the garments in their hands, and they referred to them. Ten miles away on the plain of Sharon, Peter was preaching a gospel meeting. And so they sent for him, and he came, and when he saw uh, the house and the mourners, he, he probably knew uh, Darkus. At least she knew Jesus, and he knew her. He sent these weepers out, the mourners. He went into the room where she was, and he knelt and put his hands on her head, and in a stern voice in Aramaic, he spoke her name, Tabitha, rise. 
and she lived. And he presented her to these widows and fatherless, and now they're rejoicing because she's back. You could put her name down with the names of great women. In fact, in almost every church, there's a Sunday school class named the Dorcas class. With the background of this woman in our mind this morning, I want to speak to women. Uh, not just mothers, but to all women. And if you happen to be a male, you know, don't take the day off. I want you to listen in on our conversation. And I think there's something I can say this morning that will be relevant to you as well. I want to say four things with this woman's model in the background. First of all, women, be something. Now the text says that she was a certain disciple, and the implication is that what she did was the evolution, the outgrowth of what she was. And what she said was really substantiated by what she was. She was genuinely a disciple of Jesus Christ. She was the real thing. Be somebody that is genuine. Everybody is able to tell the difference, especially the children. And the most significant thing about you is not what you say, it's what you are. For the most significant impact one makes is not the expression of his convictions, but the embodiment of those convictions in his daily life. Survey after survey substantiates the fact that what we are as models are what our children largely become. In fact, to say that I was raised in a home with alcoholics, I'm never going to be an alcoholic. It just doesn't work that way. You have a two times greater chance of being one. To say that I was lived in the home of an abuser and I'll never be an abuser, exactly the opposite is true. You have four times greater chance of being an abuser. For usually our homes are really not experiences that motivate us to be different. They are models that enable us to become the same. You've heard it all the way through. You've heard it over and over again. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn If a child lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If a child lives with fear, he learns to be apprehensive. If he lives with pity, he learns to feel sorry for himself. If a child lives with jealousy, he learns to feel guilty. But if a child lives with encouragement, he learns to be confident. If a child lives with tolerance, he learns to be patient. If a a child lives with acceptance, he learns to love. If a child lives with honesty, he learns what truth is. And if a child lives with friendliness, he learns that the world is a nice place to live. In 1990, a crisis uh, happened in the music world, the recording world. Nilly Vanilli got a Grammy for the song, Girl, You Know It's True. But they found out it wasn't. I mean, Nilly Vanilli had, had lip-synced the whole song. And in the shame of that um, fake farce, they had to turn their Grammy back in. Jimmy Bowen, who was president of Columbia Records, who recorded the song, made a significant statement. This is what he said. There's a lot of phoniness going on around in the lives we live. 
and Nilly Vanilli was just playing the game. I'm here to ask you this morning to stop playing the game. There's a lot of phoniness going on around us. It's time for somebody to be genuine. It is said that if a child, uh, until a child is 15, he does what his parents say. After he's 15, he does what his parents do. And one young man talked to his parents and said, you know, when we got, you'd get us together and you'd give us those instructions on how to live, I just closed my mind to that and just let it fly right on by. For what I learned from you, I learned inadvertently. I imitated not what you said. I imitated what you were. Be somebody. Second, do something. Now the scripture says that this woman was abounding in good deeds that she continually did. I was tempted this morning to talk about the good things that people do, but I want to translate that in light of the fact that we're talking this morning to to, uh, uh, moms and about moms and about parents. I want to translate that to the family and say two things. First, We need to begin to impress upon our children at their birth the ways of God. Henry Blackaby is a name some of you are familiar with. He literally is shaping theology and and uh, the spiritual atmosphere of Southern Baptists, in fact, the world. He is the most sought-after speaker um, in, in Southern Baptist life now, he's written the, the bestseller that has ever been written by any Southern Baptist called Experiencing God. Henry Blackaby has five kids. Four of them are, are boys, are males. One is a female. All five of them are involved in church work. As a minister, as, a, as, as BSU directors, as youth ministers, as missionaries... And somebody asked Henry Blackaby, what is the, you know, how did that happen? How is it that all of your kids turn out like that? He said, well, I give all the credit to my wife. And he said, I can recall that these, these little children were in the arms of their mother, and they were, they were nursing at their, at their mother's breast. She was singing songs to them that they would learn later. And he said, before my children ever knew who Jesus was, They knew his name. She was impressing upon them at birth the ways of God. A few months ago in a uh, a, a, um, Baptist women's uh, or women's fellowship luncheon we have here at the church, I talked about a woman named Eunice. She had a son named Timothy. We don't know much about Eunice except that she pressed upon her son the way of God from his birth now, she couldn't impress upon him how he was to, to live, or, or she couldn't bring out the fruits of her faith in his life, but she could give him a name that he would never forget. She gave him the name Timothy, which means God-fearing. So every time he heard his name, from the time he was able to recognize his name, he heard the request of his mother that he fear God. Now, I know it's not kosher, in our day and time, to impress on people, you know, our beliefs and that kind of thing. I had a lady tell me in, the, in this church building, I don't believe and in, in, you know, in trying to press upon my child what I believe. I believe that the children ought to grow up and make their own decisions. And we just don't 
press upon them or stress upon our child what we believe. I find it interesting that it is only in the realm of, li- of religion that we have that liberality. In other words, if your child came in and sassed you this morning, I'm, I have a feeling you're not going to say, well, I'm not going to impress on my child my beliefs about manners and respect of parents. You're probably going to say, you do that one more time, and uh, you're going to stay home tonight, that kind of thing. Or if your kid came in today and said, I believe a balanced meal is cake in the right hand, a piece of cake in the right hand, and a piece of cake in the left hand. Get it? Balanced meal. That's my idea of a balanced meal. You're probably not going to say that. No, what we do is we try our best to find what is best for our children. And from the time they are born, we impress upon them those habits of spiritual and personal discipline. Second, we need to teach them the ways of God. I know what you're thinking. Well, I take my children to Sunday school and church. Friend, that's not enough. I've even had people blame me when their children went bad. I've had people say to me, the church failed us because it didn't teach our children the things they needed to to handle life. Listen, friend, we don't have them that long, and we're not prepared to do that, and we're not equipped to do that. If your children are not taught the ways of God at home, we cannot do it here. The only thing that the church can do is substantiate and affirm what you're teaching them at home. You cannot delegate that responsibility to the church. I go up to McLeod Prison about once every six weeks. Not long ago, I was talking to a guy up there, just kind of in a private conversation. This is what he said. He told me, he said, I've learned so much in these Bible studies here in prison. In fact, he said, everything that I know about God, I've learned here in prison. I've thought about it a lot of times. If he had learned about God at home, would he have ever gone? prison. Do something. Teach them the ways of God. Let me say third. See something. Now what Dorcas did was she was able to see the needs of humanity around her. Pretty remarkable thing because to live in that culture was to struggle to survive. I cannot imagine how it must have been like living in that age, in that culture. Just, you know, getting up and surviving was a battle. And so everybody's focus was upon survival, upon their own needs, and that's where their focus was. And and it's not much different now because, you know, um, our focus primarily is upon, you know, just making it paying bills and surviving. And to be able to see beyond, you know, the monthly bills and the crises that come along occasionally, to see beyond that is a rare commodity or gift. Fanny Crosby said, I lost my sight, but I have my vision. Where is your vision this morning? Where is the focus of your life? I mean, what are you seeing? I wonder if we're able to see what God wants us to see. You can have a teenager, some of you have a teenager, he can have dirty socks in the floor for weeks. And you're going to say to him occasionally, Son, 
daughter, have you picked up those dirty socks in your room? And his answer is going to be, what socks? But you move a, he has a favorite cassette on his dresser, and you move that six inches, and he's going to scream, who's been messing with my cassette? And so we get a little frustrated because they don't see what we want them to see. I wonder if we really see what God wants us to see. What do you see when you look at your children? Jean Lamont was not a Christian, is not a Christian. He's a French existentialist. But he's written some insightful works in a, in a piece called The Verse. And in one of those works, he tells about a man who has agoraphobia. He's afraid to leave his house. And the only contact he has, the only idea he has about the world is what he can see through his keyhole. And so he crouches down during the daytime and looks out the keyhole of of his door of his house. One day he saw a man and wife come down the street hand in hand and he developed an idea of what love was. And one day he saw a little boy walking a dog through the keyhole in the fence and he develop a perspective on, on, on childhood, on pets. And his priest would come occasionally to visit, and he would just go on and on and on about what he understood about life. It was what he understood, very narrow understanding of life from what he could see through the keyhole of a door. What do you know about your kids? To the degree you spend time with them, to the degree that you're involved in what they're doing out there beyond the house, to the degree that you listen to them, you have a perspective on them. What do you see when you look at them? Michelangelo saw this huge stone, but he saw more than that. He saw the statue David in it. You see them as a blessing. You are a burden. Do you see your children as a gift from God and you have a stewardship over them? What do you see? One last thought. Be somebody. Do something. See something. Leave something. Now one of the beauties of Mother's Day is that we come together and we live in the glow of her life. The most beautiful time of the day in West Texas is at the sunset and you're able to kind of stand there and see the, the afterglow. And the most beautiful thing about a person's life, I think, is that you can live in the afterglow of it and remember. And that's a beautiful thing. The afterglow of one's life, what they leave. What are you leaving behind? Darkest left, things they could handle with their hands, tangible things of life. I called some people, or I had my secretary call some people to ask this question. What does your your mother leave? 
Mrs. Zimmerman, said, The most important thing my mother left me concerned God and Jesus Christ. She taught me about Jesus. She gave me the love, a love for God's Word and taught me how to study God's Word. She taught me the value of putting spiritual things above worldly things. Lastly, and very importantly, she set the example of what she taught. Georgia May Lighty. My mother left me the wonderful example of a fine Christian lady. She loved my children enough to help me raise them, and for this I'm grateful. She left me a great love for missions. As I grew up, mother and dad kept girls who went to college. After school, they'd go into the kitchen and tell her all their problems, concerns, triumphs, hopes for the future. She would always listen and encourage them. She left me this legacy of encouraging others. Jean Barker. My loving mother left me a strong Christian heritage. She taught me to live right, to be honest and truthful. Raising five sons, she had to be, a, had to be strong and rely on God. She's the reason I never smoked. I remember one time several of us boys were out fishing on the river. I took two or three drags on a cigarette. Mother found out about it and wouldn't let me go to a ball game. You know how he loved ball game. I always let her know where I was going, about what time I'd be, she could expect me in. I respected her. This is a great legacy. In 1619, on the banks of the James River in Virginia, a man erected a monument to his wife. And on that monument, he had these words inscribed. On the soil of Virginia, she put her little foot and this horrible wilderness became a home. I ask you, where, what kind of footprints are you leaving? Let's pray. In this solemn moment, Father, arrest us to the great responsibility. Someone has said that we have only five years left to teach our children. The windows of opportunity are closing. Grant to us as a church, as parents, as grandparents, to leave something behind that makes a difference. For I ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. I wonder if there's anybody this morning who would do the most important thing anyone could ever do, and that's to give his or her life to Jesus Christ. Like Sunday morning, just get up out of your place. Like Sunday, that young man just got up while I was talking and started coming. Maybe you need to come this morning as, as parents to a place of recommitment of your life to a Christian home, to family prayer together, whatever. Or as a, as a 
individual, as a father, a mother, or a sibling, a child, you would make a decision God would lay on your heart to make. While we stand, we invite you to come.